Hello and welcome to the Moonshots podcast. It's episode 43 and it's a very special episode. I'm your co-host Mike Parsons and as always I'm joined by the man from Brooklyn, Chad Owen. How are you Chad? I am very excited. We are welcoming a return guest to the Moonshots podcast here and so I'm just going to go ahead and introduce him right away. Some of you may remember him from our excellent episode where we broke down all of the wisdom from Fred Smith of FedEx. And uh, please give a warm welcome to Gary Hoover, our return guest, to uh, talk about some very interesting unsung innovators of the 19th and 20th century. How are you, Gary? I'm doing great, and I'm glad to be with you guys today. Gary, it's so good to have you back on the show. We got so much positive feedback uh, about the Fred Smith episode and Chad and I have been busy doing our homework to dive into the world of these mysterious innovators, these innovators that we should probably know a whole lot more about. And what's really exciting is that we are going to open up the Gary Hoover database live on the show and we're going to hear about uh, what it takes to be a great entrepreneur uh, not only in this century, but previous ones. And the crazy thing, Gary, is that the themes are so universal. Curiosity, courage, learning, reading, trial and error testing, and, and just having amazing ambition. It's remarkable how these themes not only transcend industries, but they transcend time. So tell us, who are the three unknown innovators that we're going to dive into and why are you so excited about these three characters? Uh, yeah. Uh, well, let me step back a little bit. I've been writing biographies of great entrepreneurs of the past over, I guess, the last year. I've been studying them for about 50 years, but through a think tank in Washington called the Archbridge Institute, we publish, they're called American Originals, and it's really about uh, great Americans, often they rose from poverty uh, or difficult circumstances and how they evolved over time. And they're little five to 7,000 word biographies that you can find on the Archbridge website and on my own website, Hoover's World, where all the other stuff I write is. But the reason I'm so passionate about studying these people and reading biographies is obviously, like you said, there's so much to be learned from them. But a lot of people think it's not relevant. But when you read the biography of one of these greats, it does several things. Uh, for all my entrepreneur friends, you learn a lot. You learn how they thought. You realize they're human. They aren't just geniuses. You know, they weren't born that way. They didn't know anybody. It wasn't about who you knew or how much money you had. It was about these things like you mentioned, ambition and curiosity, lifelong learning. And the other thing is for a potential entrepreneur or really any business manager or leader, it's inspiring. You know, you read them. You also understand uh, all the problems and you realize, well, gosh, I thought I had problems. <laughs> Look at what these people went through, men and women. We write about both of them. 
So I really believe, you know, I teach entrepreneurship and entrepreneurial thinking to big companies. And I think it's just hard to be studying these people. And the other thing is about, okay, they're out of the past, uh, you know, lost in the mist of time and all that. But one of the things I, uh, Chad took one of my courses and I'm sure he heard me say, there's nothing in business that matters that's new. And certainly the techniques and technologies change all the time. And some of the people are going to talk about, they made those changes, drove those changes, created the modern world. And so whether you advertise using billboards or you use the telegraph or whether you use uh, Facebook, that changes all the time, perhaps faster than ever, although change was pretty incredible uh, over the last 200 years. Um, but the basics, the things that matter, these things like curiosity and ambition, being imaginative, taking good care of your people that you work with, those things have been around for 100, 200 years. And those are the most important things and, and the ones often not taught in business schools mm -hmm. where everybody's so busy learning techniques and tools yeah. and how to do spreadsheets, all of which matter. But so that's, you know, that's a preface to everything we're going to talk about today. Sounds, sounds great. And it is, it is quite amazing, isn't it, Chad? The more that we're doing the show together, how universal the themes are becoming, regardless of the century, regardless of the vertical, regardless of the person's upbringing, it seems like there are these very strong tenets to how to be a great entrepreneur and to how really to create products that people love. Yeah, we've somehow managed to draw through lines from Bill Belichick, you know, <laughs> one of the most winningest head coaches in NFL football, to Lady Gaga, uh, you know, uh, you know, one of the most popular performing artists, all the way to people like Yvonne Chouinard from Patagonia, who really just wants to let his people go surfing, you know, and and, and they they share so much in common. Uh, it's it's been really fun, but. Gary, you left us hanging there and in, in, in who we're going to be talking about today. And so I'm, I'm curious, you know, what industries and markets are we going to be exploring and, and under whose watch? Uh, yeah. So the, we're going to talk about three people from very diverse industries. Uh, the first one was a guy named George Eastman, and he really created amateur photography. He created modern photography. He created one of the greatest companies the world ever, has ever seen, Eastman Kodak, which has now gone into decline. We'll talk about that, too. And to me, I, the article I wrote, I called him the greatest technology entrepreneur in American history. And he's a person that any technology leader or entrepreneur could learn from. And even if they just took a few pages out of his book, they'd be way ahead. The second person is a guy named... Adolf Zucker or Zucker, depending on what you listen to, Z-U-K-O-R. And uh, he's far less known than Eastman because of the Kodak company, but he really created the modern motion picture industry, and which, of course, led to the movie industry, I mean, to the TV industry and all the others. But he was a, an amazing man who was very bold like the others. And the last person we're going to talk about is uh, Robert Wood. And he, unlike the others, he didn't start the company, but he took over the biggest mail order company in the world, 
uh, the Amazon of its day called Sears Roebuck, which uh, declared bankruptcy in October of 2018. So there's a complete arc from mm. uh, beginning to greatness to uh, failure of one form or another. But Wood was a guy who joined the mail order company and converted the entire company to a chain of bricks and mortar retail stores. He kept the catalog, but he layered over, layered on top of that uh, hundreds of retail stores and became the biggest, most profitable, greatest retailer on earth for several decades and was uh, quite an amazing individual. So we're talking about certainly technology, hardware, and uh, software, if you count film as software uh, <laughs> creation. And we're talking about media and uh, how you entertain people that relates to sports and mm. uh, concerts and music and uh, uh, all that today, TV and movies. And we're talking about retailing, which, of course, is the fundamental business of Amazon and Walmart and a bunch of other very interesting companies today. So those are the three gentlemen uh, that we're going to be chatting about. Sounds so exciting, Gary. I mean, when I think about Sears, what what I think we should mention about uh, Robert E. Wood is he had a great career in the U.S. Army prior to joining Sears. He happened to, just by the way, create one of the biggest insurance companies in the U.S., Allstate, which was born out of Sears. Kodak, I mean, you cannot begin to look, uh, I mean, to fathom what Kodak did in sharing memories, in capturing magical moments in life. And Paramount, holy smoke, Adolf Zucker, in, in building Paramount, uh, had an amazingly, had a huge work ethic. But if you think about the impact, the cultural impact of the American film industry, of which he is a pioneer, if you begin to think about the influence he's had in America and abroad, it's massive. It's absolutely massive. So three wildly successful, huge legacy uh, innovators. I am super fired up, Chad. How are you feeling? When, when, you, when you think about these three guys, Chad, who do you think you know the least about? Uh, I'm going to say Robert E. Wood. I, I know some about Sears but not much about Robert Wood. And I've kind of heard the names Adolf Zucker and, and George Eastman before. And so I'm probably a, a lot like many of our listeners who may not have heard any of these gentlemen's names. Please go to moonshots.io where you will find all of the links to, to Gary's series of, of articles that he's writing about these innovators and many more, um, as well as maybe some of the... Uh, first source materials and books that Gary has gone to, to, to learn if, if you want to learn more about these gentlemen and even more. And yeah, you know, we're always looking for feedback and really appreciate all of uh, your emails to hello at moonshots.io. And with that, we can get right into it and talk about Mr. George Eastman. Uh, yeah. What a guy. <laughs> uh, so he was born in the 1850s. July 1854, and uh, his father was a farmer in upstate New York, and he also had a chain of business schools uh, um, where people learned accounting and typing and all that jazz, and might have been a little early for some typing, but uh, he, his father uh, died, 
And his mother had to take in boarders and they were struggling and George had siblings. They moved to Rochester from where they lived way out in the country. And uh, so George is a teenager. He gets a, a job. He takes several jobs. He ends up in a pretty good position at a bank and he, he keeps getting raises and he's made assistant in charge and all this jazz. And then the his boss uh, uh, retires or leaves, and George is the obvious guy to get the job, but he doesn't get it because a member of the board of directors had a relative. And George, uh, man, he took that seriously and, and quit over it. But in the interim, as a, as a young guy, and he's saving up money, he, all his life he wrote down every penny he took in, every penny he spent, and... Uh, hey, hang on, Gary, Gary yeah. he did bookkeeping. He, he kept the books. <laughs> Literally. L- literally? Yeah. Oh, he was a writer. He wrote 200,000 letters in his lifetime. Yeah. And that's kind of the source for the uh, really good biography of him that I read. Oh, wow. Uh, you can always find the sources for my uh, information at the ends of all my articles. Uh, and they can all, you can always go to Hoover's World and click on contact me and send me an email if anybody has additional questions. So anyway, George, he's got some money to invest. And the U.S. is involved down in Santo Domingo, what's now the Dominican Republic. And uh, they're building a, a port, a fort, whatever. And uh, there was a land boom. And he said, well, maybe I'll go down there and look into investing in land. And one of his friends said, well, you should buy a camera and take pictures uh, while you're down there. And so George bought a camera. Uh, He never did go down there to visit, never did that investment, Uh, but he uh, got interested in photography. Now, photography at that point was like a 50-pound camera as big as a shoebox and a black tent in which you would do all the developing and you had out of all these chemicals, and you had to soak and a massive, a massive tripod, right? Didn't you have oh, to yeah. stage, stage uh, yep. it and, and all that kind of stuff? And a hood over the photographer's yep. head to keep it all dark, because you had to take a glass plate and coat it with liquids, all the right chemicals to sensitize it, and do it in the dark, and then rush that big heavy plate. I think it weighed a pound in into the camera shoot the picture, uh, and keep it all dark, and and then uh, develop it, which was more processed. It took all these chemicals. And so photography had been invented, but it was very difficult. And the only people doing it were professionals, people that were paid to take pictures. And, you know, there's great pictures. I think it was Matthew Brady that took pictures in the Civil War and all that. But so George got interested. But he said, man, this is a pain in the butt, you know? And he started tinkering at home. He later rented a little room and, and he played around with it and he found out everything he could about it. He talked to every photography expert. He read all the magazines and journals and newspaper articles. And in one of them, he saw that in England, somebody had invented a dry plate process. So you didn't have to have all the liquids uh, or it didn't have to be wet when it went in the camera. You still needed liquids to develop and all that. But he said, well, that's a good idea. And then he thought, well, you know, we need a machine that can make these dry plates. So he invented one. He was still a teenager. And then he went off. I think he was 20 or 21, so still really young, went to England to get patents on it. And his idea was he was going to sell the um, 
patents in England and and then use the money and keep working on photography. Well, the British loved his idea and said, oh, yeah, we, we might buy it. But they kept saying, we might, we might, we might. And the money didn't come through. And he got frustrated with that. And that was, I got a little ahead of myself there. That was about the time he was still working at the bank. He was working at the bank till like five every day and then working on photography till breakfast the next morning. That's incredible because, because what I understand is during this period, Gary, Eastman spent three years in his mother's house experimenting with the, the gelatin emulsions to, to get the product right. So tell us a little bit about like how he actually made these big breakthroughs because I think this isn't this really at the heart of his greatest innovation that he took this massively cumbersome, awkward process and just through trial and error and experimentation, you might even call it prototyping, he was able to vastly change photography, but he was not a photography expert at all. Well, he, he was probably the top photography expert by the time he was 23 or 24. But um, yeah, so uh, 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 he kept making these machines and he started producing these uh, uh, dry plates and selling them. And then he started t- playing with the idea of roll film, of, of a strip of some sort of substance and run it to the camera. And the idea had been invented sometime earlier, but nobody had figured out how to really make it work. He got obsessed. He finally came up with a breakthrough, came up. He sold a camera for, I think it was $25. And then you'd send the roll of film in because it still took chemicals uh, to develop. And they'd develop it and send it back to you. And the roll of film was 10 bucks. And he thought, well, this is going to be a big hit. And he showed it at all these festivals and fairs. And it was a hit there. And he thought, okay, now the professional photographers are going to adopt it. But no, they, they liked the old way. They didn't want to change. And he was really at a dead end. And, and, and you're right about experimentation, trial and error. On one thing, he had a problem with these plates he was selling. They were fogging up. He gave all the customers their money back. And then he did over 400 tries to get it right and failed wow. and then he, and then he went over to england where he was buying the gelatin from and found out they changed the cows that they killed to make the gelatin and that was the problem it was like 40 years later they discovered it was the cows weren't eating enough sulfur rich mustard his chemist later <laughs> discovered that he, he didn't know why but he knew go to these other cows and we'll be fine so he was just persistent but anyway he's sitting there he says look professional photographers aren't taking up these, you know, roll film cameras. And what am I going to do? You know, I'm all my money, all my dreams. He now had 25, 30, 40 employees making the dry plates. And he knew he didn't want to stay in that because there were dozens of competitors. It was a tough business. And he realized, hey, the only hope is to get photography into the hands of everybody. In fact, to make a camera so easy, even a child can take a picture. And that led him to keep on working on the roll film idea. And uh, then he came up with the Kodak Brownie. So so that sounds like he almost had like a Bill Gates moment where, remember when Bill Gates said, hey, I want to put a PC on every desk, right? Yeah. In every home. 
so just tell us go take us back to that vision that you were talking about because it seems like there was a big moment where he, he had, Eastman had obviously had some initial success but then the resistance he felt in going from sort of uh, from a small to a much larger mass market he realized he had to go for a very bold vision can you just just tell us more about that moment and what what spurred that that inspiration for that vision well, I think it was just that dead end. You know, he it wasn't selling like he thought it would. It wasn't hitting all the professionals. So he, he really changed from a, what they would call a B2C company. I mean, a B2B company to a B2C company. And, and part of the magic was the word Kodak, which he invented. And the idea was that word can't be mispronounced in any language in the world. There is no word just like it in any language in the world. And it can't be misspelled any way in the world. And the hard K appealed to him. And so in Eastman, we have a technologist, an inventor, who was a brilliant marketer. And and that's proven by many other things he did later on. But and. And that's so rare. I mean, you know, Steve Jobs got that. IBM got that. But HP and Microsoft and uh, Dell, maybe, our friends here locally in Texas, um, most of those people are not really very good marketers. Chad, did, did you realize that behind the story of George Eastman was not only this huge breakthrough in terms of technology, but I had no. I, I assumed that there was a Mister Kodak somewhere. <laughs> oh yeah, I I kind of did as well. I, there's so much that I've already heard, for, and we were only what he's what like 27, 28 ish yep. at this point, Gary. Yep. So um, you kind of glossed over it, but like it, you described him as as him becoming obsessed, and I think we can all all of us entrepreneurs can identify with that inability to to do anything uh, other than, you know, focus on our business and, and making it succeed. But this kind of pivot that he makes at, you know, from a B to B to B to P, B to C company um, is really fascinating. And I'd be curious if, if there's any, you know, MBA students that are studying that as kind of a case study, there probably isn't, and maybe they should, but that's a fascinating, like ha- someone that doesn't have all of the sophisticated tools that we have today to, understand market sentiment and you know focus groups and all of this it, he just was going out there trying to sell something and the and people were were not buying and so he said well i have the, what i believe is a, a great invention what can i do with it and he just turns and tries to sell it to a different market and well we all know kind of what happened you know once roll film got out there I, I, how many trillions of feet of film do you think Uh-oh. had been sold <laughs> over the years a lot and you know the other the other thing was he worked really hard to get the price down because then he was in a mass market potential. So that old uh, brownie Kodak camera dropped from uh, twenty five dollars down to I think it was five dollars for the camera. Oh. And to send your film off to Kodak, have it developed and sent back to you, dropped from ten dollars down to fifteen cents. And this was all back around 1900, 1890s, nineteen hundred. And Kodak, it showed up in a Gilbert and Sullivan musical. Uh, they made poems and songs about it. People were called Kodakers. And at their peak, as we moved through in the 20th century, Kodak at one point made 90% of all the film in the world. 
they had, even later, even into well into the 20th century, they had something like a 70% global market share. Wow. And there were a, a good German and Japanese companies in it, too. And in my studies, I've never seen, I think this is safe to say, I've never seen a company achieve that high a market share in a physical product unless they had uh, government protection. Government saying, oh, you got to buy that. Kind of like the old AT&T. Yeah. For a company to do it on its own with global competitors, just through the sheer greatness of its products and low prices. And, and the other thing was that he created these great jobs. It was a uh, Kodak had among the lowest turnovers in, of any company in America through most of the 20th century. Uh, they gave people giant bonus checks every spring, equaled about five weeks pay every employee. He gave stock to the employees. Uh, the company was never unionized wow. because uh, unions couldn't make any headway. The people were too happy. It sounds like, Gary, there was no problem for the unions to right, solve. Right. <laughs> They're getting bonus checks every spring. And the other thing, too, you mentioned about obsession because there was no question he was obsessed with all this. But if you read the biography... Uh, he he may have had the most diverse interest of any entrepreneur I've ever seen. He was a automobile fanatic, a gardening fanatic, a music fanatic, a global traveler. He bicycled around Europe every year. He'd take weeks at a time off and leave the company to his trusted lieutenants and go on his jaunts. He built a huge mansion. Uh, he became a huge philanthropist. He built a whole new campus for MIT up in Boston. He really financed the University of Rochester. He created the best music school in America. He built a theater, a chamber of commerce building. And, and at the same time, in all these things, including the Eastman Kodak Company, he was the ultimate detail man. He r drew out the floor plan of every building, both at the Kodak Company and the university, everything, before he'd let the architects decorate it. <laughs> he, he was an expert on fireproofing buildings. He was a genius at gardening. He loved guns. And I mean, he, he, it's in my article. I think he had 25 hobbies, probably, wow. all of which he was really into. Wow. The guy did a lot in his lifetime. He did everything but fall in love. Or if he fell in love, he never married and uh, died a bachelor. I, 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 I'm struggling to see where he found time to sleep, let alone have a have a wife <laughs> to have a wife but i wanted to come back um when you were talking about all the things he did for employees and staff i instantly had memories of the hp way you know what what yeah. uh, what they did in in yeah which went away yeah which also disappeared but um tell us a little bit more about it seems like he he really but the, the needs of the people that worked for him. Tell us a little bit more about, give us a sense of why he was so invested in that because he definitely was in an era, I mean, particularly the industrial age was famous for putting factory workers on the assembly line. How did he buck that trend and, and where did that, that, that care and empathy for his staff come from? Well, you know, one thing I step back a little bit, uh, he really maintained control of the company. He owned a huge share of the stock. Uh, he, he paid for paintings and things. He was really into art, too. And he paid for paintings with stock, which made all these other people wealthy. He had employees. One employee who wasn't even a very top executive gave $25 million to the University of Rochester when he died. 
um, at, at, uh, at one point, and this is even in the 1970s or 80s, uh, Eastman Kodak was the third most valuable company on the stock market. So, wow. and, and he had control of a company and he had great wealth. And I think that gave, and he wasn't working for anybody, you know, he was working for himself. Yeah. And so I think that gave him a lot of leeway, a lot of latitude, and he decided to share the wealth, whether that was through universities or helping his city or his own people. And, and one reason in the gardening thing, well, all his factories, um, the giant Kodak Park there in Rochester, New York, it was all gardens and beautiful. And part of it was he said, I need to make Rochester a better city to live in if I'm going to attract the kind of people I need. Now, you know, Rochester's get some snow and it's not New York City. Or, and, mm-hmm. and, um, and so he, he attracted the best and, and he brought in great chemists. That's one reason he gave money to MIT. He had hired so many people from there, uh, even though he himself had almost no education except learning how to do bookkeeping and stuff and self-educated but no well, very little formal education no high school diploma i don't think and and if you study all these greats they they vary in how they treated people and really the conditions they were under uh when we get to wood at sears he was very generous and yet that was in retailing where you have hundreds of thousands of people hmm. kodak's people were largely in rochester he had a very, very profitable business. They made their money on film. You know, they essentially like yeah. Gillette's razors. They give the camera away and sell the film. And and they also, we haven't touched on it, but they pioneered in movie film, in x-ray film, in aerial photography, where in World War One they had, uh, they taught the uh, uh, U.S. military how to do aerial photography. And they brought in color film and color movies. Um, so it was a company that was, Always and moving ahead. And one of the key things he learned early on, too, at first he was involved in patent fights and patent suits and trying to defend himself that way. And he finally realized, hey, only the lawyers get rich and we fight for years and you never know how it's going to turn out. So he kind of abandoned that and said, no, the only way we can win is to make a better product every day and work and work at it and we'll leave our competitors in the dust. And he did. The the thing that's striking me, Gary, about George Eastman is I am struggling to think of any other entrepreneur that Chad and I have discovered on the show that has, I mean, the the breadth of interest and endeavor. I mean, you know the concept of the Renaissance man. Sure. I mean, it feels like George Eastman was the archetype. He, I mean, I have not heard of anybody having such breadth, such interest, such endeavor across such a wide spectrum. Chad, can you think of anybody that comes close? Bill Gates. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he, um, he's pretty impressive. And like Eastman, he has a second career as a philanthropist. Yeah, yes, I true. think it's the, the longevity of what Eastman did himself that's really incredible i like i don't know that we have kind of enough time in history to have had another <laughs> person <laughs> like him just because the longevity of of the kodak product was as you know from so for 70 years you know it was 
you know, still in 1980, it was kind of one of the most valuable companies on the stock market. Like, yep. Again, like I just don't think we have had enough time in history to have another person like him. One thing too that I've noticed, it's true of most of these people I write up, these people were all really rolling by the time they were 20. And, you know, they were high school dropouts and stuff, uh, most of them. And, you know, so they started earlier. Now, they tended to die younger. A lot of the people I study died in their 60s and 70s. But even so, um, how do I say it nicely? And I have a bachelor's degree. I'm glad I do. I'm very proud, proud of, I love going to school. But, you know, big chunk of the world now takes four years uh, sometimes six, you know, an MBA or a law degree, or if you become a brain surgeon, it's like 10 or 12 years or something. We take all these years doing other things. And, and a lot of college degrees, people aren't doing as much learning as partying. And I, I party too. I, uh, that's okay. But, uh, <laughs> you know, these people hit the ground early and they, they learn by, uh, reading, talking to people and in many cases, uh, working as kids, you know, in other people's stores or whatever. And so they, and, and most of them you'll see in the biographies, they'll say, well, I could keep going to school and waste my time, or I could take a job with this guy and learn how he does it. And so it was really on the job training in many cases. And that's kind of, in many ways, been abandoned today. So... I mean, certainly as, as also a college dropout, I can relate to, to these gentlemen in the fact that that hard work in, at such an early age, I think also comes from a sense of if the default, the de facto standard is everyone goes to college and you've opted out, you do feel a great sense of urgency to get on with things because you don't want to be left behind. Um, and when you find your calling that, that pulls you out of college, I think you quickly just throw yourself all in. And it sounds like George Eastman um, went all in. But I want to I wanna challenge you, Gary. Um, sure. George Eastman was already succeeding at the end of the 1800s at its peak, at its zenith. Uh, you know, Eastman Kodak was remarkable in the degree in which it dominated its given market. With all of the accomplishments, the, the philanthropy, the work he did in Rochester, if we now take a filter of, well, what, what can we today, what can our audience learn from Eastman? What would be some things that Eastman did that we could do today to go out and succeed in the world at innovating, being an entrepreneur, or just creating products that people love? Well, you know, I, like I said, I think any technology leader, really any business leader, could learn so much. And you really have to go through his whole life and look at the things and stop and thinking about it. The other day, you know, I live with um, something like 50,000 books. And I realized that for every five minutes I spend reading, I probably spend another five minutes thinking about what I just read and what it means and how it might relate to my life or my students' lives. And so really, I'm a really slow reader. And so you've really got to look at all the pieces. But, you know, some of the things is he, all these people, they were obsessed with the customer. They love the customer. They value the customer more than anything else. They weren't locked in their office all the time. They were out talking to customers. They used their own products uh, every day. When Eastman traveled the world, he took all these pictures 
you can still find a lot of them in his uh, biography and in books and things. Um, you know, he worked hard to lower the prices. He wasn't trying to increase his margins, even when he didn't have strong competitors to scare him. You know, he was like, well, how can I make it cheaper? How can I get it into more people's hands? Mm. Uh, he was always open to new ideas, but he would test them and he wouldn't ship. a. Well, I start to say he wouldn't ship a product that was perfect. That's usually not a good idea. But man, he, he would sh ship a product and realize it wasn't good and send everybody their money back and said, send them back to me. Uh, that's not good enough. <laughs> and uh, he, he was always moving ahead. And, and one thing I'd say when we're talking about his multiple interests, he was very project oriented. All this stuff he did with the YMCA and the two universities and the music school and the theater. And, uh, and he built dental clinics for kids in Rochester, Rome and London. Uh, he had all, and but each of those, he would put his mind to it, focus on it, get it done and then drop out. And these charities would say, well, you gave us all this money. We want more money. So I'm sorry. I nope. I did what I was going to do there. I achieved my goals. I'm not giving you any more money. I'm going to the next one. And he would then atta attack another project. And he did that like almost till the day he died. So, so that, I mean, that is an enormous suite of uh, good habits that he had. He was a, a tester and a learner. He was always his own customer. He was trying at all times, not, even when he didn't have to, to democratize a product. And he was very project focused. I want to kick it over to Chad and say, of, of all of those, which one has inspired you the most, Chad? Which one has got you going, hmm, I got to do more of that? Oh man, I have to choose just one. <laughs> <laughs> it's a bit like that, isn't it? <laughs> um, I don't know. I I really like this idea of because for for him it was it all started with creating a better user experience for taking photos. Mm. And he just became obsessed with removing all of the barriers to taking photos. And then kind of the happy accident of that was he found out a way to put photography in the hands of really billions of people as opposed to maybe the couple hundred or thousand professionals that were out there in the world. I, I think that's kind of the most inspiring part of his story. You know, I, I don't quite have his ambitions and maybe, maybe, maybe I should, maybe, maybe I should kind of revisit uh, some of the change that I'm hoping to make in the world. So yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe that's what I'll do. I'll, I'll revisit my ambitions to see how I might learn. Yeah. Yeah, uh, from from a young George Eastman. That, I love your point. I, I do agree. He is a great case study in solving a problem because you got to remember. I mean, he was working in banks. He was sort of like a, an accountant who who fell into having a, a camera. The camera sucked, and he's like, "Well, this is just not good enough." And three years later, he'd sort of cracked the code on the first invention, and then so many powerful things came out of it. He obviously had this massive legacy which all started with solving a problem. I, I do want to give Gary one uh, last question on Eastman before we move on to Adolf Zucker. Gary, um, I, I'd love to, to hear your analysis. How did a company that was founded by such a marvelous entrepreneur that achieved great heights of success who was dethroned by a technology that they ironically invented, i.e. the digital camera. How did we get to a point where the company went bankrupt? How did 
What's your view on how did such a great company fail so badly? Uh, yeah, well, uh, there's a lot to say about that, but a kind of short version. They couldn't make the transition to digital. By that time, it was an older company, more bureaucratic, more ingrown. Uh, had uh, He died in the 1930s, so it was 60 years after that. And And the other thing which most observers don't comment on is... You know, it wasn't an, an electrics or electronics company. It wasn't a consumer electronics company like we think of today. It was a chemical company. They made their money making film. And in fact, uh, they created their own chemical company. And today, Eastman Chemical is stronger than ever. I was just trying to see here. They, I forget, they do billions of dollars a year. It's a giant public company. So while the uh, film company we all know about uh, really collapsed, uh, the chemical company is enormous. And, and, and I have to add that uh, the Kodak company still exists and it's got new management and they're trying to be imaginative and turn things around. We'll see if they do. But uh, no, I mean, most companies have an arc. They have a birth and a glory days and a, a death or certainly a decline. Mm. And a lot of it's just a natural evolution. Like, like I always say, the greatest cause of failure is success. You know, people get satisfied. The bureaucracy gets big. They um, drink their own Kool-Aid. <laughs> uh, they, got the, they get the not invented here syndrome. And then it's time for another disruptor to come along. You know, one of the key things about all these people, uh, for sure, Coda Eastman, nobody else saw what they saw. They had this vision of, of a whole new industry. Mm. And when he quit his job at the bank to focus on photography, all the businessmen in town said, he's nuts. He's, he's leaving this good job, <laughs> good salary for this will-o'-the-wisp is what they called it. And they thought, well, nothing's ever going to become a photography. This is silly. And he said, no, there's, there's something here. And, and much like uh, Steve Jobs and Bill Gates in the early days, he said, this is going to get big. It's going to get bigger than you guys think. And I'm going to bet myself on it. And, um, and, and despite all the obstacles and all the naysayers, you know, everyone, everyone, and, and I'm sure even his relatives uh, said, uh, I don't know, George. I don't know, George. What are you doing here? And man, it takes, um, man, it takes a real, belief in yourself and in your ideas. And, and those usually evolve over, t over time. I work with so many teens and 20-somethings that have this idea and they want to run out and start a business. And so often their great advantage is their youthful energy and their self-confidence, but their disadvantage is a lack of experience. Well, you know, like you say, George had been working several years playing with this stuff by the time That's he right, quit the yeah. bank job and uh, went, went rolling. Yeah. He he certainly got on a roll and it was amazing to think that even though he you said he passed away in the 1930s. You know, when I look at my my youthful view back in history, Kodak were a mega corporation, a mega brand in my childhood. Like I remember in the 80s, it, Kodak was a powerhouse. Um so to think that it it succeeded for a long time after Eastman passed away is is testament just to, to to his legacy. Before we leave him, a couple a couple of quick things. Yeah. He was unique. He was a bit eccentric. 
He was a practical joker. He thought there could be a more efficient calendar. And for 60 years, the Kodak company ran on a 13-month calendar. All 13 months had 28 days. So every month had the same number of weekends and all that made it easier for accounting and measuring sales. And, and that was different. And the other thing, probably not a tip we should take from him, but he got old and he got sick. He couldn't exercise anymore. Couldn't see his friends. And um, he asked his doctor to paint the outline of his uh, heart on his chest, uh, you know, mark it on there somehow. And the doctor left and then he smoked one last Lucky Strike cigarette and pointed a uh, gun at his heart and shot himself through the heart and left a note saying, my work is done. Why wait? <laughs> so he was a one of a kind man. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my gosh. The um, There's so much to take from him. He, he was just the perfect way to kick off a look into some of the, the mystery innovators in our world. So um, I am totally primed after that first dive into the world of Kodak. Chad, how are you feeling about Adolf Zucker and Paramount Studios? Where do we begin in that world? Well, I am a student of the films of the era in which Zucker kick, kicked things off, but I am completely ignorant of the industry itself. So I'm really interested in learning, you know, kind of about the creation and rise of stars in Hollywood, you know, which wasn't a thing when when films first came out. I know that it was very much driven by people like Adolf Zukor and kind of creating this quote unquote product of Hollywood stars. And yeah, I'm just I'm really curious what we can learn about some of some of these early media companies. Yeah, and and so let's Gary take us into the world of Adolf Zucker of Paramount Studios, and maybe you can start. Just what was the contribution of Adolf Zucker? Uh, well, he he really invented the movie industry. He invented the feature film, if you can use the word invented, innovated, maybe. But I think you got to step back and understand where he came from. So. He's an orphan in uh, Hungary, right? Uh, the old Austria-Hungary uh, empire. And uh, his uncle takes him in. His uncle thinks all the boys ought to become rabbis. Uh, that isn't for Adolf. He, nah, he, he finds the Bible stories fascinating. The people, the adventures they had. And he was reading the great novels. He found stories really interesting, but didn't want to be a rabbi. And after some stuff, he finally convinces his uh, uncle and other people to uh, let him come to the United States. I think he was 16. So he comes over in steerage, you know, the bottom of the boat. He's got $40 sewn into the lining of his clothes, lands, doesn't speak English, uh, looked down upon because even the wealthy German Jews in New York City, they considered the Eastern European, Hungarian, and other Jews being beneath them. But he struggles. He gets a job at a fur furrier making furs and becomes an expert at cutting them, making furs. And and he learns English. He always had an accent, but he learns English. He he becomes Americanized. He does some boxing. He plays baseball. He ends up going to Chicago um, to the uh, World's Fair in eighteen ninety three. 
and says, oh, this is an exciting city. And he ends up being in a partnership making furs there. Well, he makes a whole lot of money, like the equivalent of $100,000 today. And he's like 20 years old. And so he's rich, you know. But then he guesses the wrong way. He picks red fox furs when that didn't turn out to be the fashion. He loses all that money. Mm. And so there's a guy who loves stories. And he also now understands a business that has fads, that has fashions that come and go, sometimes rapidly. So those two things are very key. He ends up, goes back to New York, gets back in the fur business, makes money again. His neighbor, a guy named Marcus Lowe, L-O-E-W, another uh, furrier, <coughs> he says, uh, hey, I'm investing in these vaudeville places. And uh, it's a real estate investment, you know, where the performers come and everything. And you should come in with me and or you should get some of your own. And over time, the two of them and they became partners in this. They built Nickelodeons where you go in, you drop a nickel in and you'd watch you either play a phonograph or you'd uh, watch a, a short a five minute reel. You know, look down in a little box, a kinetoscope that Edison made. And 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 they were had penny arcades. But it, these are more expensive. These were a nickel, you know, and so. Uh, and but they started building and they made a lot of money. But Zucker would sit and watch and he started doing little movie theaters with a five minute movie. And he'd watch the audience uh, hours and hours of what made him laugh, what made him cry, what got him excited and what bored him. And it got to the point where he said he could just sit there with his eyes closed and he could just sense it. He could tell what, what the audience was feeling. But one of the things he said is, what about good stories? You know, these are just locomotives running over, uh, about to run over the maiden, and then the guy comes and saves her, and, uh, or the black-hatted villain, chase scenes, and pratfalls, and, you know, little short things. So at that point, the mo- what we call the movie industry was controlled by Edison and his friends. Mm. He had invented a, a movie camera, and he, using Co- Eastman's Terry All at made the film and everything. And to show movies in the U.S., you had to use Edison equipment, and you could only show films made by one of his companies he was friends with. There were nine or ten filmmakers, and they made these little short movies. And and so Zucker wanted to make like a, hey, I want to make 10 minutes, 15 minutes, even 20 minutes. And, <laughs> and they said, no, that's stupid. And he went and met with them and tried to convince them to, to keep his little theaters full Make me a longer movie. And they, they basically laughed at him. They had him sit and wait in the office for three hours one time. And, and so no, go away, go away. Well, he ended up bringing in this 40 minute long film from Europe about Queen Elizabeth with the great actress Sarah Bernhardt. And he spent like $35,000 and outrageous amount of money to bring it in. And he figured out how to show it. And it was a big hit. And, and over time, the Edison and his buddies, they lost control of the industry, all nine or 10 of those companies went away. And so there were all these independent filmmakers, little guys making films. Mm. And Zucor didn't want to make films. He liked operating the, you know, the real estate, having the theaters, but he couldn't get enough good films. So he started making some, and then he partnered with a guy named Jesse Lasky. And his idea, Zucker's idea, was let's take famous plays and famous players because Broadway was a big deal then. That was a lot more expensive. It was $1.50 to go to a Broadway show, nickel to see one of his movies. Gary, one thought here. This is 
eerily like George Eastman, the accountant who bought a camera and thought, well, this is a terrible product. I need to fix it. What we're talking about here is Adolf Zucker, previous uh, fur coat and fashionista, now real estate magnate, doesn't have enough good films in his cinemas, so decides to make some films. Yep. And it's a matter of seeing opportunities of, you know, when it knocks, hearing it, which most people don't. You know, Steve Jobs did, Bill Gates did, uh, and, and Eastman did, and Zucker did. And, and so he, why do you think Zucker and Eastman were so tuned in to these opportunities? And why do you think they leapt at them when it seems like few people see it and even fewer really jump for it? There got to be a lot of reasons, but one of them is paying attention to the public, to the customers. Right. And, uh, you know, a little different with Eastman, but, but he, he held a picture in his hand that took him hours to make and said, this is pretty darn cool. And, and Zucker, he, he said, look, you know, people like stories. They read novels all the time. They, they'll sit three hours for a Broadway play. Why are you telling me I'm nuts? And, um, and one of the things is even when they did start to make films with uh, stars in them, uh, with uh, people from Broadway, which is very difficult because some of them didn't know how to pose for a camera and all that. But to find the right ones, uh, Mary Pickford came off Broadway, and soon enough she was making the equivalent of today's money of $100,000 a week from these guys. But the other filmmaker said, well, don't put the actors and actresses' names on the screen because it'll go to their heads and they'll want too much money. And Zucker said, damn right, you know, and he created a movie star. He put their names up there. He made a big deal out of them, paid these outrageous prices. And um, and and as it evolved, uh, there's a part of the movie industry most people don't know about called distribution. So you've got production. They make the movies. You've got exhibition, they call it, the movie theaters. Mm. But in between, and, and they get like 35% of the revenue of your movie ticket when you buy one, is distribution. And that's an outfit that may finance the movies and then picks what theaters to put them in, mm-hmm. cuts the deal where the theater gets um, a certain percent and the production gets certain percent, does all the advertising. And there were all the little local ones all over the U.S., little ones in each state, in every region. And a guy named, I think, Hodkinson out in uh, California, he created a thing called Paramount. And the idea was, I'm going to have a national distribution system. Pick the best theaters, whether they're in New York or California. The movie makers, the producers can just deal with me. And so Zucor signed up with him. And Zucor was making three quarters of all his films for Paramount, separate companies. Zucor then said, well, I want to take over. And he took control, bought out Paramount, put himself in as president, and merged all that. So then all of a sudden you had movie production and distribution. Uh, now, I forgot to mention, Zucor, in the meanwhile, had gotten out of the theater business. He was totally focused on making movies and distributing them. But then later, uh, as other people started to buy up movie theaters and make chains of them, he was afraid his films would get cut out of the deal. So he started buying movie theaters and by the late 20s owned over a thousand of them and became the biggest in that too. So he had everything, theaters, distribution, and production, Paramount Pictures. Would you say, Gary, that he kind of pioneered vertical integration from raw production through creation, refinement, 
distribution market. Like he sort of almost created an end-to-end chain, didn't he? Absolutely. Yep. Yep. Certainly in that industry. Yeah. And it's in something that's not like a physical product. So I'm sure that had been done in physical products before. And certainly um, people were beginning to learn the power of controlling supply chain, like Henry Ford and and many other manufacturers. But here's someone that was- But Henry never got into into, uh, exhibition. You oh, know, true. he never owned the dealerships, but, but I'm sure you're right. Uh, Kodak had stores. So, but most of the stuff they sold to other people, but you, but this was absolute total control of everything by 1929. Well, and everyone else copied him, right? All of the other people, just like you said, if someone only did distrib- or if someone only did exhibition, then all of a sudden they wanted to start distributing and making the movie movies themselves. It was a chess game. Uh, you know, he didn't want to get into theaters until he got worried about that. He didn't want to go into production back when he owned theaters until he was afraid he couldn't get the movies. So the other people were doing things and uh, at the same time, but, but he perfected it. There's no question about that and became the biggest and most powerful and richest until the depression hit what came what uh, you mentioned his his riches before the depression but what what results came of that vertical integration i mean how successful did they become gary well from certainly the by the 30s the they call it the studio system there's a great book about the hollywood studio system that i recommend in the stuff i write and it dominated and it continued to dominate until probably the 50s, maybe the 60s. But in the 50s, television really hit and that really shook everything up. The movie companies had a lot of issues, spent huge amounts on money, like uh, on uh, things like Cleopatra with Elizabeth Taylor that lost money. And over time, First of all, in 1948, I think it was, the government made all the movie companies sell their theaters. And the theaters were where they made a lot of the money. But they spun them off. The theaters had cash, but were going downhill. The whole Paramount chain became a company called United Paramount Theaters, run by a young lawyer, a guy who had learned under Zucker. And and he saw the theaters going down, but he had cash, and he's the one that bought the ABC network when everybody told him he shouldn't because it was a distant third to NBC and CBS. Hmm. And Zucor in his 80s or 90s said, no, young man, you're right. TV's the future because he was such a visionary. But theaters came out in 48. Later, by the 90s, the government let him own theaters again. A bunch of them bought theaters and realized, oh, that's a different business. They make their money selling candy and popcorn. You know, they don't make that much money on the tickets and they got back out of it. Uh, And now and today, the movie industry is really what I call a networked industry. You know, individual groups that get to people, uh, individual groups of people get together for a single project. So bring in this editor, bring in this screenwriter, bring in these actors and actresses, bring in that director. And and it isn't like a big top down thing. There's still a lot of power in the distribution companies, but the old guys, MGM, 20th Century Fox, Paramount, the number one one is is Disney now, yeah. which uh, by buying Pixar and the Marvel franchise, Marvel franchise it has risen to be the biggest one, I think, the last several years in a row. Um, so that was another twist. But isn't it, isn't it fascinating, Gary, that that 
Disney will also be launching Disney Go, I believe it will be called, their own Netflix. So they're going to be inspired by, by a little bit of Adolf Zucker and go for some vertical integration. So they will own the end-to-end chain in, in an attempt to keep up with Netflix. How do you see that playing out? Well, do you think Netflix will open theaters just like Jeff Bezos is opening retail stores and buying retail companies? <laughs> oh, my gosh, the thought, just the thought. I mean, why not? I mean, if you wanted to dimensionalize the Netflix brand, you could reinvent the cinema and just have some sort of, you know, like Nike has a superstore in major cities. Maybe they maybe they yep. create these very high-end theaters. Uh, I'd, I'd, I'd show up. They may also discover it's an entirely different business altogether in the same way that that the studios came back and, and bought theaters in the 90s. But I, I'll just say personally, I would love to see what a Netflix movie theater experience would be like. You know, There's so few theaters and really only independent theaters that are, I think, able to provide at least the experience that I enjoy uh, on a regular basis. Yeah, yeah, I totally agree. I totally agree. Now, if we were to adopt the very best of Adolf Zucca today gary um it sounds like we've been we've all been rather struck by the the power of the vertical integration he hit that he sought and what else can we take from the adolf zucca playbook what could we be applying on our projects on our products today well among many other things i think one thing is the power of content uh, I personally lean towards believing that the content is more long term has more value than the conduits, um, the distributors, mm. in a sense. Uh, I mean, if you look at it, of all the industries I've studied, those old Kodak cameras are collectible, but not worth much more. That company's gone. We're going to talk about Sears in a minute. That company's about gone. Even great buildings, skyscrapers, sooner or later, they get demolished to make room for a new one. Uh, most of them do. And a lot of things we think are permanent aren't very permanent. I grew up in a General Motors factory town, and I tell you, my dad would roll in his grave if he thought that company would ever go bankrupt. Mm. It wasn't nearly as permanent as we thought. And yet, Gone with the Wind, The Wizard of Oz, uh, Ten Commandments, Lawrence of Arabia, Star Wars, those are going to be worth money in 200 years, 500 years. They're more like the Beatles or Beethoven. Those are things that are really going to last. Hmm. And because they're owned by a company, they're a financial asset. And those film libraries, which have changed hands many times over the last several years, some of the big libraries, you know, those, those are going to outlast the Empire State Building probably. And that, that's pretty interesting. Uh, one thing, too, I ought to add about uh, Adolf before we leave him is he, uh, he borrowed heavily to build the movie theater chain and buy all these companies. And sometimes he gave him stock so he didn't have to use cash. And then he promised to buy the stock back at $80 a share. This is 1929. Everything's going great. The stock was saying, selling for 78 and he was an optimist. Sure, I'll buy it back at about that price. Stock went down to like eight in the depression. The whole thing collapsed, went bankrupt, took dozen, uh, 40 some law firms to straighten it out. Zucker lost control. One of his old guys that worked for him became the chief. Zucker helped get him in. And then Zucker was named chairman, not the CEO, but chairman. 
And up until his 90s, he continued to spend uh, two hours every day at the studio and watch every Monday morning, see the box office results. He, until the day he died, they said he had a better eye and ear for what a good movie was and why one worked and one didn't than anybody in the industry. And the old boy lived to be 103 hmm. uh, and exercised all his life. So, again, another very interesting individual. So it, it feels like what he shares, what Adolf Zucker uh, of Paramount shares with George Eastman of Kodak is this relentless drive to solve a problem which starts with humble beginnings but seems to, with all that courage and that tenacity and that learning, they end up creating vast empires which all started by solving a very simple problem. Uh, solving a problem or maybe better word, seizing an opportunity. Yeah. yeah. Se seeing an, an upside because, I mean, you can make a case. Nobody was walking around before Eastman saying, well, I wish I could take pictures, mm. you know, and uh, sometimes the need is not so obvious. Uh, there are visible needs. Uh, Henry Ford saw people needed to get off the farm and get into town and faster than a horse, you know. But there are a lot of unseen needs. When I started my giant bookstore chain, there were no giant bookstores in America. There were a couple of independent stores, but nobody did it like I wanted to and discount and everything. And when I did surveys, almost nobody said, oh, yeah, I could use a store like that. Yeah. They didn't know it till they saw it. Mm. Whereas I saw it in my mind's eye, like uh, for seven years, I worked on developing the idea. So before we jump into the world of Robert E. Wood and Sears, the retailing great, I want to ask Chad, have you got any last thoughts or questions around the world of Hollywood and Paramount and Adolf Zucker? Well, just to, to Gary's last point in kind of being able to identify the opportunities, I'm kind of drawn back to his days as a furrier and that maybe it seems to me many of the lessons that he learned about business in in that seemingly completely disconnected you know world and industry i actually think and and you you foreshadowed it gary you know th this idea about trends and and you know playing playing to the fashion of the day so to speak i think he applied that astute observation I, i'm as a furrier i'm sure you had to know exactly the colors and styles and the way people were wearing them and using them or not. And, and still he blew it, you know, he right. lost well, all his money. He made it time. back again. That really taught him. Yeah. I mean, he, he was really down and out and <laughs> he lost his hundred thousand dollars, but then he, like you said, went back to New York and, and did it again and, and kind of pulled himself back up. But I think this is a theme maybe that Mike, you and I have seen across many of these innovators is this, I'll just call it pattern matching that this, this, time spent observing and then, you know, connecting the dots uh, and doing this pattern matching to to see the opportunities. And then, of course, having the ambition to 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 to, to go after it and, and, to, and to seize it. Another, another way of looking at that thing with um, Zucor and this, uh, both his love of, of fiction and stories and his understanding fads, that made him the ideal person to do all this but uh, the idea of, I'll call them hidden talents. So I was talking to the um, head of uh, career advice at the University of Texas some years back. I think she's moved on to another university. And she wrote a book about it and everything. Very interesting. 
but she counseled all these students and a lot of them, you know, were in the wrong majors. And she was working with this one young woman and I forget what she was majoring in social sciences or humanities or something. And uh, the counselor did deep probing about, well, tell me about your childhood and tell me what you were interested in. Well, it turned out the young lady had been great at pool, at billiards. And the counselor said, well, you know, that really means you're good at geometry. And the gal said, well, I don't know. I never tried. Well, she changed majors to math and was delighted and happy and went on. And you can, that's kind of parallel to what went on with Zucker and learning about fads and fashions. When, when he ran into fads in the movie industry, it didn't freak him out. He said, mm. I've seen this before. And I might be wrong and I might be right, but today I'm going to bet this way. And his son said that every evening at dinner, he'd come home with the kids and the mom and would say, boy, did I screw up. I said that was going to work and it didn't work. So tomorrow I'm going to do this. And and they had to, in the early days, they'd have to move from a, a big house with servants to a, a, a little apartment above a theater somewhere because he was always rolling the dice placing bets, mm. but he grew comfortable with that. And, you know, a lot of business people, hey, those GM executives, even with automotive styling change and stuff, even the best of them probably would not have made it in the movie business with the whiplashes that come with a, a fashion-oriented business. Well, certainly it sounds like what we can learn from Adolf Zucker is he's got a bit of resilience because he was working well up into his late 90s every single day, famous for his work ethic. He saw boom and bust cycles time after time, the advent of new technologies. I mean, he is a true testament to staying the course, isn't he? Absolutely. You know, wonderful. Okay, well, now it's time for us to jump into another business of ups and downs of great peaks and great troughs. It's the world of retailing and we're going to go to really an American stalwart, an icon of shopping and the retail experience in America, which is Sears. And we're going to look at a gentleman called Robert E. Wood and he brings us some really different skills um, as well as sharing some with with uh, Zucker and Eastman. Robert E. Wood, uh, tell us, Gary, why does he matter and, and what's his story? Uh, those who know me know my favorite field is uh, retailing. I've spent most of my life in retailing. And so now we're finally to an area I know something about. <laughs> and, uh, I don't want to let it go unsaid, Gary, but you were the founder of my absolute favorite bookstore when I was growing up in Austin, Texas, Bookstop. So not only are you learned it in this, like you've done it. <laughs> you've literally, literally built the stores. Oh, and I, I learned from some greats too. I worked for uh, some big retailers and spent, I've been studying it since I was 12 years old. So would, uh, well, he built the biggest, greatest retail company on earth. Uh, that, that, that enough. Uh, but, but let me backtrack a little bit. He, he, uh, came out of Kansas city. Um, he wanted, he couldn't afford college. His father had ups and downs and it was during a financial downtime. And so, uh, he, he said, where can I go to college free? Well, the military academy, government pays for it. So he wanted to go to West Point. Well, who went to West Point was picked by your local congressman. Back then they were all men, I guess. And he, he, uh, the congressman would only send Democrats in that 
place because he was a Democrat and Wood, he and his dad were Republicans. And so he convinced the congressman said, no, don't just send your friends, uh, do a test and then send whoever does best and convince the guy. He t- Wood took the test, goes to West Point, um, gets a lot of demerits. He was sloppy, didn't keep his bed and his neat and his boot shined and all that. Didn't like the discipline, but, but he learned a lot, got a good education, came out, goes, he runs a whole troop, a whole town of 6,000 people in the Philippines when the U.S. Army was down there, uh, learns how to manage at the age of like 20, 21, uh, ends up working on the Panama Canal and becomes like the number two guy. In his 20s, he's responsible for buying millions of pounds of concrete, building a railroad, carrying out all the details under this brilliant engineer who loved to design it, but didn't want to deal with the details. And he said, man, that was the roughest job he ever had in his life. And he learned more then than anywhere else. And, uh, and he later was the, uh, what they call the quartermaster general in World War I, uh, responsible for bringing all the supplies to the troops in Europe. Uh, but that came somewhat later. So anyway, he goes through the military thing, get, gets out of the military, uh, has a couple different jobs, ends up at the first big mail order company in America called Montgomery Ward. And Ward's was the original one. Sears came along like something like 20 years later. Uh, Sears by 1900 became bigger, Sears Roebuck. But um, Wood was working for the competition. Wood was a data junkie. He, um, the legend is that when he was in the um, Panama Canal working on him for a while, he got sick. He got a fever or something. And they put him in the infirmary. And the only thing to read were census books. So he became an expert on the census. He was a lifelong voracious reader. And he became an expert on the census. And it was said that all his life, every day, maybe right before he went to sleep, we don't know, every day he read a table out of a big statistics book published by the U.S. government called the Statistical Abstract. And he's working at Montgomery Ward, and they're making all this money with mail order catalogs, selling to farmers competing with the larger Sears. And he says, look, with the Model T, the car, the farmers are going into town and they can go to stores then and they don't um, uh, have to buy just out of a catalog. They got other options. And the other thing is the number of farmers is going down with McCormick's Reaper and all this John Deere and new equipment. You know, uh, we need less people. People are moving to cities where we're building factories and everything. So we should open stores in the cities and small towns. But he was focused on the cities. And this all came from a study of data. Well, the Montgomery Ward guys, they said, no, no, we're making all this money on the catalog. You're doing a great job. He was doing great stuff for them. And uh, they said, no, no. And he eventually got in a fight with his boss. Uh, I think Wood says he quit. His old boss said he got fired. Doesn't matter. He's out on the street. Well, I got to back up a little bit one more time here. Richard Sears, I've seen lists that say Sears is one of the greatest retailers of all time. They don't mention Wood. They don't mention another guy named Julius Rosenwald. Rosenwald was a Jewish guy in Chicago who made suits for Sears, dreamed of being a banker (laughs) and wanted out. And he ended up selling control of Sears Roebuck to this guy, Rosenwald. Rosenwald is the one that really made it the biggest catalog operation on earth and became one of the wealthiest Americans, an amazing guy, gave 
like 15% of the company to the employees, uh, treated them well, had theaters at the big catalog plant in Chicago. He was amazing, and he's almost unknown. Well, anyway, by the 1920s, Wood has been fired at Ward's, and Rosenwald is old and looking for a successor. And he picks another guy, uh, a, a guy that was a railroad executive, because the railroads were well-run and big and powerful, and makes him uh, the new head of Sears. Well, then he finds out from a shoemaker that Wood is looking for a job and would be ideal. Well, Rosenwald's not the kind of guy to go back on his word, so he says, okay, I just hired a president. I want you, Wood, to come to work for us, but I can't make you president, which Wood was ambitious. That's what he really wanted. He said, but I'll make you number two, and I'll pay you well and give you some stock in the company. Wood, Wood says, look, I'll only go to work for you if you let me open retail stores in the cities. And Rosenwald, it depends on which source you read, but I think he's like, oh, I don't know. We're making a lot of money on the catalog. But if that's what it takes to get you to join us, okay. So he agrees to let Wood open stores. Well, the president, the railroad guy he'd hired, dies a few years later. I think he was like 45 or 50 years old. Both he and Wood were about that age. So Wood becomes president. And by the time we hit the uh, mid-late 20s, Wood is building stores all over America. And by 1931, Sears was getting more revenue from stores than the mail order catalog. Wow. Uh, so that's kind of the beginning of Sears' real greatness. But that, that sounds like a massive shift because running a direct mail order business and then switching into physical retail, that is a massive change in how you distribute and engage with your customers. But what we should also say, it was in 1931 as well that they actually launched Allstate Insurance. This is a, a vastly different business to what it was, say, 20 years prior. It, it's quite a, a remarkable transition and quite quick for its time. Yeah, yeah. And Wood understood that they didn't know what they were doing. They tried to buy J.C. Penney, which was a much bigger, they had a lot of stores. And Mr. Penney and his team were highly regarded. I've written a biographical piece on J.C. Penney, James Cash Penney, a great name. And, and they tried to buy Penney and uh, interesting, even though they were going to be competitors, Penny showed him all his data and they shared all this stuff and they ended up not doing the merger. Penny wanted to keep his company independent for a number of reasons, but, but uh, Wood understood they needed retail talent. He tried to turn some of his catalog people into store managers and it wasn't very successful. Wood was always trying stuff. And when he opened the stores at first, they were like discount stores. They were dirty shelves. They were cheaply built. The stores were ugly, and uh, he said, I don't want to waste money on fancy fixtures. Well, within a couple of years, he said, wow, fancy, he tested them. <laughs> fancy fixtures work, and, and he, he brought them in. And, and so he had a catalog company and a retail chain. They used the same buyers, but the buyers were biased towards the catalog chain. So he had all this tension, all this fighting, and Wood just did not put up with it. He sat them together in a room and he, whatever, shut the door and say, either you guys get along or you're both fired. I'll be back in an hour, <laughs> you know, and that kind of thing. And, and he tried every kind of management structure. At one point, like all, I think there were 400 or more Sears stores, 
Every single store manager reported directly to the CEO, Robert E. Wood. Wow. (laughs) There was no middle management. And he was always boosting failure. And he'd be in meetings. And and he'd come out and he'd say, look, what that executive wants to do is nuts. It'll never work. But I told him to go ahead and do it because it's better if he burns his own fingers and learns the lessons the hard way. He'll be a better executive then. He was always telling key executives, don't give orders. Listen from below. And he made his store managers rich. He gave out all this stock to the employees, all the employees, following in Rosenwald's, uh, what he had set up. Wood made it even bigger, but he also he put caps on what the executives could get, but not on the lower people. So he made his cashiers, his appliance salespeople rich. He, he was a Paid his people incredibly well, Gary. Um, what we what what I uh, came across was that Wood served as, in the end, I believe he served as chairman uh, for close to twenty years in the subsequent time. But in his early period at Sears, they introduced um, the first real savings and profit sharing fund for the employees of the company, which at the time was quite revolutionary. Now, uh, you were touching... That was Rosenwald. That was Rosenwald, right. But what was really interesting is that um, what I discovered is that towards the end of his life, he said that the thing that he was most proudest of was actually the work that he had put into the savings and profit-sharing plan for the pensions of employees, he actually, despite everything he had achieved, plus serving in the in the military, every, it came down to taking care of the pension fund for the employees. Do you think that's one of the most distinctive things about Wood? Is he seemed so, uh, compared, particularly to, to Zucker, and maybe less so to Eastman, but he seems so driven by the welfare and well-being of his own employees. That seems like such a strong thing in his legacy. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd put Eastman right up there with him. But uh, but that really was uh, Rosenwald. Obviously, Wood believed in it. He expanded it. And by the 1970s, 25% of Sears stock was owned by the employees through that program. <laughs> and he always said, we got to pay more than the competition. Um, but But he was tough. You know, in fact, he remained lifelong friends with people he fired because he was so good at it and graceful. But man, if you didn't measure up, you were gone. Now, that wasn't a lot of turnover because he developed training programs and everything. Another thing that's very parallel, and this wasn't, uh, well, maybe Rosenwald, but this was really Wood, was the way you treat your suppliers. Wood did not want any company selling everything they made to Sears. He wanted them to also sell to Macy's and competitors. And he said, look, it'll make them stronger. It'll keep our buyers on their toes. Mm. And he also wanted to make sure that all of his suppliers were profitable because he wanted to be around long term. Instead of looking at each deal and saying, what's my price today? He made long term contracts. He, he created all these companies. They created Whirlpool, which is the biggest appliance maker in the world still today. But that was uh, Wood and his people that put some of their suppliers together, invested in it, helped finance it to make sure Sears had the best products. And, and that's the other thing on products. He was always saying, look, everybody sells a refrigerator this size. But I looked into it. He was always <laughs> looking into stuff. 
I looked into it, and it doesn't, uh, just a little more steel only costs two bucks. We can make a 20% bigger refrigerator sell for the same price. And he did that in every category. He did that in tires. He did that, even sold automobiles at one point. They sold 150,000 houses, kid houses that are still standing all over America. Everything they did, they worked with the supplier to say, how can we make this more efficiently? His buyers became experts in manufacturing in their category. How can and, and when he saw the South was poor, he financed all these farmers. Uh, he told his producers to build factories in the South. When he saw Latin America had a future because he studied the data, he started opening stores in Mexico, which interestingly were sold off a few years ago and are really well run. They're owned by the richest Mexican, Carlos Slim, and they're doing great, unlike the U.S. operation. Gary, there was this story, just I want to take even his achievement list even further. This is a story I came across that I think it was roughly 45 through 53 mm-hmm. managed to lead a project at Sears where they tripled their sales through improving the infrastructure in the stores and facilities and so forth. Like he seemed to be a brilliant retailer. Oh, brilliant man in every regard. Uh, Everybody who met him said he was a genius. So if we try and decode some of his mental models and approaches, you've talked a lot about being a data junkie and experimenter. He really cared about his staff. What are the other signature Robert E. Wood approaches to how he has succeeded? And, you know, we mentioned that they created banking companies, they created insurance companies under Sears. Don't forget the Craftsman brand and the Kenmore brand were all born out of Sears as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, what else did he do? How did he do it? What was that special Robert E. Wood sort? Well, I, I think one really big thing was this whole thing about telling his managers not to give orders. He really wanted a bottom-up organization. He Mm -hmm. thought the most powerful person in the company was the store manager, and he wanted to develop great store managers. He made them rich. He would fire, or he he didn't like them. They'd get bad ratings if they weren't the head of the Chamber of Commerce, if they didn't build a YMCA. He had this whole vision of what these people were in every town in America, even uh, big companies would put all pull all their cash in a big New York bank to get the most interest. And he started doing that. But then when the manager said, well, the local banker, he's not real happy with this. He moved all that money back into the local banks and hmm. and they made less money because of that. But this idea, because I was just reading, there's a lot of chatter now about agile management. There's a interesting book by a guy named Steve Denning out about it. There are a lot of books, a lot of talk. And a lot of it is like, There's even a thing called leaderless management. And how do you move it back downstream? How do you put the power closer to the customer? That's very difficult. And and Wood did it. He lived by it. It upset a lot of his key executives. He fought them all the time. I mean, he's a good guy. They stayed with him for years, but there was all this tension. And what's interesting is if you look at the decline of Sears, you can make a case it really started in the 60s and 70s that they really peaked just about the time that he was no longer on the board of directors. Hmm. And what it was is it became bureaucratic. They got into big executive suite fights up in the Sears Tower. You know, they built the world's tallest building. Hmm. Uh, What good did that do the customer? 
But Wood would have never done that, man. And, you know, so in a lot of ways, his agile management was not sustainable. The people that took over after him were people who'd been there 30 and 40 years. Uh, they probably sat around. I'm sure they did say, well, we'll do it the way the general did it. Well, the way the general did it in 1945 isn't the way the general would have done it in 1985. Exactly. <laughs> that much you can count on, you know? And yet they did that. So in, in a lot of ways, he set the company up for failure in a way. But how, how do you do that? I, one of the many books that needs to be written in business, maybe I'll write it someday, is why do great leaders pick loser successors? You see it over and over and over. They have yes men or something. Gary, it goes heard, wrong. Have you heard the thought that the greatest leaders are judged by the successes they pick? I haven't heard that, but I like that. Yeah. It's a theme that comes back, obviously, in Good to Great, that Jim Collins was looking for companies that got better when the sort of the, the hero CEO, when he or she left, if it got even better after them, yep. that was that, that was actually a lens by which he judged truly great companies. And it's so true. I mean, look at the trouble Starbucks had when Schultz has tried to leave it a couple of times. <laughs> or Microsoft. Yes. Under Balmer. Yeah. They've been there all those years. Yeah, but that's tricky. If you study the greatest manager of all time, mm -hmm. Alfred P. Sloan, the man that really built General Motors, when he retired... He refused to participate in the selection of his successor. He thought it was beyond him and the board should do it. He later, much later, said he wouldn't have picked the, <laughs> that person. But <laughs> he didn't say it till the other guy was dead, I think. Uh, he was a pretty cool guy. But um, no, but, you know, it's going to reflect the kind of people you surround yourself with. And, and how do you get people that think differently? Sam Walton, when he opened a new uh, Walmart store, he said he always made sure there was somebody in that store's management team that annoyed the other people, that was different, that didn't fit in. And and one day, you know, Sam called in his uh, chief operating officer, COO, and his CFO, chief financial officer, and said, I want you guys to switch jobs. And they were flabbergasted. The accounting guy says, man, I've never run a store. Oh, wow. And the store guy says, i I'm not an accountant. And Sam says, no, you, you need to be broad enough to carry this thing on. And hey, Wood, he said the best thing for Sears would be to break it up into several companies. He'd studied the breakup of Standard Oil back in 1912 or 1913 and saw that the stockholders came out way ahead when you broke it up into a bunch of smaller companies. And he said Sears should do that. And Sam Walton said the same kind of thing about Walmart, break it into a group of regional companies. And of course, none of either of their successors ever even contemplated that. Mm, mm. While, we're, while we're on this topic, I did want to ask you, Gary, we, we've looked at three uh, entrepreneurs that r reached enormous heights, uh, breathtaking heights. You know, when you look at the cultural scale of Paramount, films and what they did not only in the US but abroad, obviously with Kodak really bringing to life not only the film industry but this democratization of us being able to take uh, family photos on vacation and obviously Sears as one of the most prolific retailer 
financing, product creating uh, conglomerates. Um, but strangely, none of them are anywhere near the heights that they rose to. What reflections do you have as an author and a historian? What do you take out of that? What What's the sort of the the twist on all of this? Obviously, we know that business has its ups and downs, but beyond that, it's 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 there's more than irony. It's a, it's, it's very bittersweet as you look at these three entrepreneurs and what they built to think that those those organizations are a pale shade of what they used to be. I think in every case, the later leaders should have read these biographies. You know, Jeff Bezos should read the book I recommend on Robert Wood. Mm. Um, you learn so much, but you have to work hard to think, how do we think like he did and uh, uh, adapt his philosophies, uh, not just the actual techniques of that era. But but I got to say, the other thing, these are three we've talked about are three of my favorites, but then you've got to look at people who build a company that's stronger than ever and they're long dead. And if you look at the biographies I've written, you can see them on Hoover's World and LinkedIn and other and the Archbridge Institute that sponsors this series. Uh, Jim Casey created it, I forget, he was 16 or something. What was it, with 20 bucks or something? He created what became UPS. Mm -hmm. Estee Lauder, I wrote her up. She went around telling cab drivers, oh, your skin could be better. Here, try mm -hmm. the thing I made in my kitchen. That company, her oh, her grandkids are all worth $2 billion each. You know? yeah, I did yeah. Conrad Hilton, uh, started with nothing, wanted to be a banker, uh, The ban uh, found a bank he could buy in a little town in Texas. The banker selling it, raised his price on him, pissed off Hil Hilton. Hilton went to the local hotel to crash, and they were renting the sofa because they were so full. And they, they were renting rooms eight-hour periods, uh, running shifts. And he said... To the hotel owner, well, you're making a lot of money here. And the guy says, well, I'm making money, but the real wealth is in the oil fields. I want to go in the oil business. Hilton bought the hotel, and today Hilton Hotels is far bigger and stronger than when he ran it. So uh, John Deere, founded in 1836. Uh, Procter & Gamble, founded in 1836. And P&G, as I understand it, their executive compensation system and they're not their, necessarily their pensions, but their retirement pay. It in part depends on the performance of Procter & Gamble for the next several years after they retire. Mm. That's how great a sense of yeah. wanting to survive. Uh, Ari Degus, an ex-Shell Oil guy, wrote a book called The Living Company. And in it, he talks that there's two kinds of companies. There's companies who want to get rich this month, this quarter. And there's companies where the key goal of the executives is to survive, to be a durable company, to be around in a hundred years. And he probably over overstates that it's either or. But I mean, look at General Electric. Man, you talk about an amazing company in its glory days. And then Jack Welch, who everybody thought was a genius, goes into finance and a bunch of areas they didn't belong in. And it was a great technology company. I mean, study the whole history of it. And now it's not going to go away. But boy, is it troubled. It is. Uh, Colgate Palm Olive, on the other hand, founded 1806. It's stronger than it's ever been in its history. So those are the ones you also want to study. Mm. Well, Chad, I tell you what, as Gary was telling us about companies that have gone from good to great over generations, I'm thinking 
we need to invite Gary back, don't you? Oh, that that's just kind of assumed at this point. <laughs> but uh, I, you know, um, I'm easy. I have a lot of stories. No, it's fascinating to me because I don't know why I'm always surprised, but no matter where we turn for these insights on how people are innovating or have innovated, the same themes crop up again and again. Like Mike, yours and mine, and I'm sure yours too, Gary, the, the list of qualities that we need to you know, cultivate and habits uh, we need to install it keeps growing, but it, it, it it's it's pretty similar, you know. This this idea of lifelong learning, adaptability, ambition, lots of ambition, mm-hmm. uh, will, willingness, and embracing f- of of failure. All of these things. It's encouraging to me to know that while there may not be a formula, we have some really fantastic role models across history. And maybe we should go back to the early 1800s with companies like Palmolive and John Deere. Um, so I, I definitely see uh, several shows in our future revisiting our American history of, of great innovators. You know, we could do a podcast-a-thon. We could go 24 straight hours, and then you could say that the sun never sets on the Moonshot podcast. Like the <laughs> hey, there you Empire. go. <laughs> we'd, we'd have to call it the Moonshot Sunrise <laughs> podcast. I, I certainly think there was, a, as you said, Chad, there was a lot of themes in looking at these three entrepreneurs. But I think seizing opportunity uh, was one thing that was really strong in these three, which they, they have brought to life. This idea that Eastman was like, this thing is, this camera is awful to move around. It should be better. Uh, Zucker, after being in the fur and fashion business, was like, why aren't people standing and sitting in my cinemas for a couple of hours like they do for the theater? Let's go fix that and create what we know as Hollywood. And and Sears was like, we're not going to be a, a direct mail order business. Let's make this massive switch. And I think that in all of those, they were fearless in in making really big pivots and switches, either in de facto standards or taking a business from left to right. And what was really inspiring for my part is that in the end, the good guys win, particularly Eastman and Wood seem to have such a deep interest in taking care of their staff whilst they work for the company and after. I found that to be a really special accent, if you will, to these three. I found that very inspiring, Chad. That's those two particular things, seizing opportunity and taking care of people, seem to be the unique character that we've been able to to define as sort of essential for entrepreneurship today. And t- tying into that, I mean, one way you could phrase it is they have the had the courage of their convictions. Right. And, right. you know, once they came to believe in something, man, they threw all in. Right now, I'm working one of the ones that will come out in a few months and future biography is a guy named George Westinghouse. And Thomas Edison was absolutely convinced that uh, electricity in America should all be direct current, DC power. And he went to great lengths. Uh, he, uh, the electric chair used alternating current power, which he didn't believe in. And so he called it the Westinghouse chair because Westinghouse believed in alternating current. Now, when all this first uh, began to happen, Westinghouse, all of his own executives, everybody except maybe two people, 
said, you're nuts. Don't invest in alternating current. It won't work. I won't go into the technical reasons. They believe that. But he had come to believe it would work. And, um, and alternating current won out. Edison was wrong. And Westinghouse and his system and other companies that were in that took over. But, but Westinghouse was just stubborn and said, no, I'm going to pour my money into it and it's going to be the future. And I don't care what anybody says. And you see that in all three of these people we've talked about today. Yeah. Mm, sticking to the strength of your convictions. I, I often say the things I see missing in big company leadership today, the two things that are missing are courage and imagination. Hmm. All the people we're talking about had tons of both, but some people just don't have the guts. They're comfy. They're making $5 million a year. How do I not rock, not rock the boat? How do I not take chances? How do I fire people who fail? And then uh, you just look at it. They just lack imagination. Mm. They, they aren't spending any time thinking about what the world's going to look like 20 years from now. Now, obviously, that's not true of everybody. Check out old Elon Musk <laughs> or not so old Elon Musk, you know. Uh, check out Bezos and his dream and how he stuck to it. And people, I remember at a board meeting once saying, Do you think, and I was still uh, close to the book business, and had a book publisher on the board. This was at Hoover's, not a bookstop. But and the book publisher said, "Well, what do you think about this Amazon thing? You think they'll make it?" And we all, you know, made guesses. Uh, I doubt any of us were right. I'm sure none of us dreamed that it would become what it is. But uh, so it's it's not uh, impossible today. But but the one thing you often see, Sears was the exception, maybe, is as long as that driven, ambitious unorthodox founder is there, the Bill Gates, the Steve Jobs, Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines, the company's dynamic. But then there becomes a huge question mark when they step down, mm -hmm. when you get the second generation. If you study revolutions in governments, there's a big thing about those who are present at the revolution and then their assistants and lieutenants who take over when the first generation dies and many times, I mean, even I'm, I really dislike communism of all types, but Stalin was a whole different kind of guy from Lenin, you yeah. know? <laughs> and so there are real issues with how do you build an organization? How do you, uh, they asked Herb Kelleher at Southwest Airlines once, what happens if after you retired, the board brings in somebody who doesn't buy your values, the love of the employees, the love of the customers, the egalitarian treatment of customers, all the things Southwest, Southwest was famous for. And Herb's answer was, if they bring in somebody who doesn't share our company's values, the employees will drive them out within a year. Hmm. And it actually kind of happened at Home Depot, where one of the guys from General Electric who got passed over when Jack Welch picked his successor, who didn't work out that well long term, but uh, one of the guys that lost out ran Home Depot. They hit record sales and earnings, and the board fired him. And I'm pretty sure a lot of it was he tried to turn Home Depot into an army and uh, too, too disciplined. And uh, Wood would have hated that because he hated all the rules and processes and procedures. And, uh, and if you study Home Depot, you know, they are, they are one of the two most successful bricks and mortar companies in America today. They're 50% more profitable than Apple Computer, if you look at return on assets. 
They're building new stores. Their sales are setting records. It's a wonderful place to work. And, and so somehow the values survive that one fella and the values the founders put in are still there because they were so deeply embedded in the organization. What was the other company alongside uh, Home Depot that... The two and I can... Well, I'll give you four. Home Depot and TJX are the two powerhouses. Okay. The two that do over $30 billion a year in sales. TJX operates discount apparel stores called TJ Maxx and Marshalls and uh, home furnishing stores called Home Goods. And they're brilliant. And besides those two, I'd have to mention... Uh, uh, Dollar General and Costco, both of which, uh, and, and also Family Dollar. There's quite a few, but these are giant companies that are booming. Uh, Dollar General is building three new stores a day, year round. They're building more next year than they did this year. They're going to build almost a thousand new stores. And they're also doing a, th uh, a thousand remodels of old stores, three a day. And of course, uh, Pennies and Macy's and everything are building no stores are very few, and and uh, Macy's said they're going to remodel some. They really need to remodel a lot. Although that's you know a company from the 1860s, and uh, they're probably going to be with us a while. But 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 the four I just mentioned, they're on a tear. They're just doing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I love I love Home Depot, and it's so easy to compare them with Lowe's. And that's where you see how distinctly better they 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 truly are as a company because kind of carbon copies of each other, yet the secret sauce is so evident in Home Depot and it's kind of lacking at, at Lowe's. But look, Gary, we've, we've taken a ton of your time. We've dived into the world. Of, I've enjoyed it. We've dived into the world of Adolf Zucker, George Eastman, Robert E. Wood. We've enjoyed it. Chad, I'm, I'm pumped with inspiration and new ideas. How are you feeling at the end of this deep dive? Oh, I'm I have the immense pleasure of going back and editing this. So I'm I'm gonna be listening and re-listening to this over and over. I'm sure my 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 notes list is is going to grow. I just I wanted to say thank you, Gary, uh, again for for the two of us. It, what stuck with me was your last comment about we need more courage and we need more imagination. I think that is a great call to action mm -hmm. for all of us uh here in in the Moonshots Network. Um, so again, just wanted to say thank you for uh, bringing some new inspiration, uh, some old blood into our uh, <laughs> somewhat futuristic show here on the Moonshots podcast. And yeah, just w one more time, where where can listeners find out more about you and the things that you've written about these innovators and and many more? The easiest place to go is uh, hooversworld.com. And you can sign up for my newsletter. That way you'll get all the new ones I write. You'll also be able to read everything I've written, these biographies and a bunch of other management advice and, oh gosh, even travel advice and uh, stories about uh, architectural history. I have a lot of interest. Uh, book recommendations out the wazoo. Uh, so there's a lot there. But I'm, I'm spread across the internet. I put my stuff on LinkedIn. I answer a lot of questions on Quora. I answered a lot about Sears and its bankruptcy. Uh, the archbridgeinstitute.org uh, is where these stories first appear. Uh, we've got uh, two already written in the pipeline to be published in the next several weeks. And a lot more interesting stories like I've touched on with J.C. Penney, Conrad Hilton, Estee Lauder, Jim Casey of UPS. So uh, there's a lot of material there. And 
my current plans are to produce a lot more. I'm working on starting a new nonprofit organization just to uh, celebrate business history and the great leaders of the past. Oh, how exciting. Well, we're, we're here and we want to be part of it, Gary. I definitely want to extend an invitation to you for coming back for another special. Maybe we can do the, the Courage and Imagination yep. episode where we, we really focus on some great stories of entrepreneurs, both past and present, that have shown bucket loads of courage and innovation and in imagination because I think, as you said, we could, we could do with a dose of that. So I want to thank you, Gary. I want to thank you, Chad. It has been an epic journey into three wonderful entrepreneurs. Everybody can find all the show notes, uh, which will include links to uh, to Gary's site, to the Archbridge Institute, and to all the different things we've uh, mentioned on the show. They'll be in the show notes at moonshots.io. Uh, thank you to you, our listeners, and all your great feedback. We'll be back with another episode of the Moonshot Podcast. That's a wrap for today. 